Check it out. Hi, my name's Lee, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with intersex project worker Cody Smith, all about intersex people, what intersex people are fighting for, and what you can do to support them. Check it out. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle, and community news. Check it out is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra, for everyone. So today I'm speaking with the wonderful Cody Smith, who is the intersex project worker at Agenda Agenda, AGA, here in Canberra. Welcome, Cody. I'm very pleased to be here. This has been a long time coming. It has been a long time coming. I've wanted you to step into my office for some time now, and it's wonderful that you're here. It's such a nice office too. So first off, maybe you could describe for me what an intersex project worker is all about at AGA. Like I tend to think of myself as the intersex person at AGA. It feels like um, every time a policy needs to be consulted on, get the intersex person, or any time an intersex peer support needs to be run, get the intersex person. Like I guess um, what I bring to AGA that's uh, quite unique is this um, sense of lived experience, which helps inform all the work that AGA does with intersex people and around intersex issues. On a personal level, how do you feel about being the intersex person? Um, <laughs> I guess um, for me, I first found out that I was born with intersex variation uh, when I was 17. And I met my first intersex person when I was probably 25. Um, having been told again and again and again that I was one in a million, I'd never meet anyone like me. And that was always a very shameful and isolating experience. So I guess for me, what I get out of being the intersex person at AGA is that I can ensure that no one has to feel like that. Um, That there's always going to be some intersex family to rely on, that there's always going to be someone you can come to for resources, and that um, you don't have to be intersex and alone in Canberra. Um, It's a way of giving back. So it's not unlike an experience of anybody who is visible in their workplace. Do you find that because of your history and you had that sense of shame and isolation that eventually uh, LGBTIQ people describe it as a as a sort of a, a journey, if you like, mm-hmm. that takes you from this point of shame and isolation and invisibility to this place of pride? Do you experience that same sort of sense? Um... Intersex pride is such an interesting notion and it feels like it's something quite radically different from other sort of LGBTQ pride. Um, It's kind of interesting to me because uh, I was aware I was same-sex attracted and um, before I realised I was intersex and when I found out I was intersex um, I was trying to figure out a sort of trans, non-binary kind of a thing. So I kind of had this sort of sense of rainbow pride before I sort of embraced this larger sense of um, sort of intersex visibility and intersex pride. But I think one of the really, really interesting things about um, intersex visibility is you're only visible if you keep saying it. Um, There's sort of like this idea that... um, um, for instance, if you are of a diverse sexuality, um, like 
performing affection in a public space will out you. Uh, when you're transgender, the act of transitioning will out you. Meanwhile, um, just being intersex, really, all you're going to do it, when you come out is confuse a lot of people because a lot of people don't understand what intersex is, who intersex people are. Um, and so intersex pride feels a lot more deliberate and it feels like uh, sometimes we get trapped in this thing where uh, those who have intersex pride become the advocates, become the educators, always become the community leaders. But I think one of the things that's really, really important to my work is that um, if you come out as intersex, you don't have to be an ambassador for your community. Like, that's my job. Let me do it. Just um, find some sort of support because you need it. Mm. You hit a really interesting point there in that not everybody has to be an advocate or an activist. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just the sheer uh, visibility of somebody is an act of activism in itself, or the not speaking out can be viewed as a form of activism. Mm -hmm. And so, as you say, that's your job. Your job is to play the role of the advocate or the activist. And there is a certain level of bravery, I suppose, and I use that word, I don't hold it lightly, that you have to sort of manifest in order to play that role. Would you agree? I mean, I just live my life one day at a time. I've, it's, it's hard to accept the term bravery when I was just born this way and it's just been surviving ever, um, ever since. Mm. Like, there's not really other options, not mm. to get too morbid about it. Mm. Yeah, but you you definitely don't necessarily have to speak out about it. Mm. You don't necessarily have to put your hand up and say, hey, if there's anybody else out there that has a similar experience to me, we can talk about it. I think that's a rare occurrence in our you know, cultural s structure, mm. I suppose. I think there's value in living your truth. Um, but I don't think that um, being intersex is necessarily part of some people's truth. Right. So, okay, let's just pause that for a second. <laughs> You've had to articulate what intersex is in a nutshell over and over again. You've done that numerous times. And there are people who are listening to this podcast who are thinking to themselves, hey, what is intersex? Can, can, can you elaborate on that a little for me so I can understand sort of a foundation of where this conversation might go? I kind of want to just set a timer uh, up just to see how quickly <laughs> I can um, get through this. Um, so intersex is a term of um, bodily diversity. It's um, a term for about 1% to 2% of the population that's um, born with a variation in sex characteristics. Uh, if you think about someone's sex, sex characteristics are all the physical traits that we would typically associate with being male or female, so sort of genitals, gonads, chromosomes, hormones, the squishy bits on the outside, the squishy bits on the inside, and the stuff that makes the squishy bits squishy. Um, I think it's important to understand that um, intersex refers to um, around 40 different variations, and each one can be subtly different, can present in uh, varying degrees of severity. Some are detected at birth when um, you know a child is born with ambiguous genitalia. Um, some might be presented later on in life when they're going through puberty and puberty's not quite kicking in uh, the same way as it does for other people. Um, I think it's important to note that um, 
sort of intersex people are also very, very diverse um, within the sort of LGBTQ queer rights framework. Uh, we have this idea of um, you know, transgender being about gender. We have this idea of queerness being about um, sort of binary and non-binary. You have sort of sexuality as being about uh, same-sex attracted or differently attracted or attracted to more than one or uh, all these sorts of different sort of um, structures. But um, the reality is that intersex people can fall anywhere on any of those other things. Um, there are trans intersex people, there are binary intersex people, there are non-binary people, uh, intersex people. And I think one of the important things to acknowledge is that while sort of queerness <laughs> as this sort of big elusive term exists at a higher rate in the intersex population, um, it's sort of, um, we talk about sort of 80% of intersex people identifying with the sort of um, binary assignment at birth. Um, so. Um, that's sort of like, um, I guess that's that's that sort of um, captures a good round definition of what intersex is, and a little bit of what intersex people are. Check it out. So, can I ask you? You've mentioned LGBTIQ a number of times, and I guess a question that's often asked about uh, intersex people and populations is that, what are their feelings? generally or more specifically about the I being included in that acronym? Uh, this is one of my favourite topics of intersex advocacy because um, it's such a good representation of just how different um, like just just the sheer diversity of opinions in the intersex community because um, there's a lot of people who assume that intersex people are hostile to inclusion um, but the reality is there's sort of this history of um, um, sort of systemic misunderstanding where um, to sort of um, really understand why some intersex people are hostile to inclusion in the acronym, we sort of need to understand what intersex issues are and how they end up being understood in a queer rights framework. So we see stuff like um, marriage equality, uh, birth certificate reform, and um, third gender markers um, all sort of being pushed as intersex issues or uh, issues that affect the LGBTIQ uh, community where um, our priorities tend to be more in line with um, sort of disability activism almost. It's sort of this idea of bodily autonomy, uh, this idea that um, we have a right to make decisions about our own bodies. Um, we have a lot of sort of systemic medical violence and it's very, very hard to um, navigate this sort of medical world because it's sort of like this generational trauma of uh, medical intervention. And it, it, it's one of those things where I've already skipped ahead because we're sort of... Um, talking about these intersex issues which are the big ticket items but um, we sort of need to understand that um, historically LGBTIQ organisations receive funding to do LGBTIQ things but then don't employ intersex people, don't um, pay for intersex lived experience, don't tackle intersex issues and um, over sort of um, years and years and years that's created um hostility because 
then because intersex is soon to be in the LGBTIQ realm, people feel that it's okay to use intersex to justify transness or non-binary identity. And I say this uh, working for an organisation that does work with transgender, diverse and intersex people. It is sort of like part of this issue of conflation where um, intersex has kind of been lumped in with all the weird gender stuff where actually intersex issues are very distinct and need to be uh, tackled in a very distinct way. Do you think that it's it would be more beneficial to isolate the issues around intersex people and populations mm. and concentrate on on those issues without relating it or conflating it with other members of the acronym? Um, so I think that the resources exist with the broader LGBTQ community. Uh, like when, I, when I say LGBTQ, it sounds like I'm skipping a letter. Like That is a very deliberate omission. Like it's, it's not about us and theming it, the conversation. It's just simply that mm, yeah. um, we need to be able to explore I issues separately. It's really easy to yeah. come across as us and theming, yeah. but I think that it's important that you're able to do that without being accused of that. I've yeah. in, in my education role, I come across that when I say, if I if I refer to cisgendered individuals, and there were plenty of them in the room, and if I'm talking about them, it's easy for people to feel like I'm us and theming. So yeah. yes, I understand that completely. It's, it's a descriptor, not a category. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I, I am an intersex person. I also love wrestling and tabletop and the color orange. Mm. Like it's it's just um one aspect of who I am. So I think that the resources exist with LGBTQ organisations and I think that um, a gender agenda is a model of what could be. It's uh, I am one of the only paid advocates in all of Australia at the moment and I think that if LGBTQ organisations want to be taken seriously on I issues that um, Mine's a very sort of replicable situation. It's 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 something they've got to want. It's it's, it's something they have to want to put money behind. But um, I think that if that's where the resources are and that's where the advocacy is and that's where intersex people are starting to be understood, then there's great opportunities to take advantage of. Um, but of course, another aspect to it is that. Um, when we go back to how I was talking about uh, the statistics and sort of like most intersex people being cisgendered, heterosexual, um, what ends up happening is that queer spaces end up becoming quite hostile to them. Um, and you sort of, um, it's it's also can be like an internalized um, phobia thing where it's sort of like, I don't want to be associated with those people because I'm not one of them. So the thing is there's, a lot of advantages and disadvantages to being included and being excluded and I tend to fall on the side that it's better to have access to those resources and it's better to find allies in a community that sort of produce results honestly Um, and I think that it's valid to have conversations about what LGBTIQ organisations can do for intersex people after marriage equality and I I think that we have started taking up space in the conversation. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say uh, that about, uh, I guess, uh, engaging with reaching out to intersex people. Because we have the same issue here with our um, HIV work that we do. We have um, people that are living with HIV in our community that 
don't feel like they can access or don't want to access the services and resources we have here at the council mm. because it's seen as a gay organisation and it's difficult to push past people's perceptions of what it means to access services. Yeah, there's so many interesting complexities just to intersex language and what term to use. It's sort of like um, we started off with this sort of um, classical medical definition of hermaphrodite, which comes from this um, very much sort of like this idea of the exotic, the um, both male and female put on display kind of medical fascination, mm. uh, bearded lady in the carnival almost. like. Um, uh, so it's it's an absolutely terrible term that's um, sort of considered to be a slur. Um, uh, but then, you know, there are people who want to reclaim that for themselves or people who can only understand their intersex variation through that term because that's what how they were diagnosed back mm. in the day. Mm. Um, then we sort of have intersex as this queer language, this human rights language, um, and then there's um, there's perfectly valid reasons why people would um, object to that. But then we have this very pathologized language of disorders of sex development. It's sort of like um, this term was received this very aggressive medical push where it was just sort of like, uh, okay, you intersex people can have your little community and have your little human rights movement. We don't fix intersex people anymore. We fix people with disorders of sex development. Mm. And then um, I think today we're going to we're starting to see this push to this language of um, variation in sex characteristics as a very sort of literal, neutral descriptor where there's none of that baggage. Um, but still, it's sort of like um, it's almost like um, intersex's brand name kind right. of activism. It's, it's people still only really understand intersex in terms of it being intersex. So. That's why it's the term I use for myself. It's the term I use for the community, and it's sort of like it, it's it's interesting trying to have conversations around that language, so that someone who goes by DSD or um, VSC or hermaphrodite can feel like they can enter an intersex space. Check it out. How are we doing here in Australia, Cody, in terms of when we talk about medical violence, when we talk about bodily autonomy, how are we doing? And is there anybody else in, in the world who are doing it better than us? Oh, boy. <laughs> you can swear if you like. <laughs> <laughs> so after the fucking election... <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, boy, that felt good. We have a federal government who doesn't care. And we have state governments that could pick up the slack, but aren't. Right. So we have Tasmania that's pushing for birth certificate reform. We've got Victoria that's pushing for birth certificate reform. And they're saying that this will protect intersex children. And it's it's sort of like on this basis that if I can put intersex on a birth certificate, then I don't need to normalise them. But mm -hmm. actually what we find is that in Germany, um, parents will seek out medical normalisation specifically to avoid that intersex classification and it's led to a rise in medical interventions. Um, in the ACT, um, we have some very good conversations going. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't want to get myself in trouble with this. Uh, like, I don't want to come off as overly critical, but so far they've only remained conversations. It's 
It's great that I have my role at um, AGA and I'm able to do very, very practical things in terms of um, peer support and um, uh, policy advice. But in terms of um, legislative change, there are people who have been doing this for decades. I've been doing it uh, probably five or six years now. And at this point, I'm getting exhausted. Right. Um, so, like, what we know is that uh, Medicare does track surgeries and you co- can go find, um, like, publicly v- available statistics. And we do know that for a certain age category that um, several hundred vaginoplasties are done in Australia per year. Um, or uh, maybe it's labiaplasties. Uh, so that's a genital cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. And if it's being done to this particular age group, it's only because they have visible intersex variation. Right. Uh, and th- the thing is that um, that's only tracking those who are then assigned like uh, assigned female at birth and being corrected to female at birth. It's not tracking any sort of hyperspadias surgery. It's not tracking any masculizing treatments. And it's only tracking one type of femi- uh, feminizing surgery. So um, in a very real sense... Um, the longer these conversations pan out, um, the more damage, the more trauma is being inflicted on our community. And um, what I want to do is get to a point where we can just end surgery and start healing the community, like just put all of our energy into peer support instead and just help each other just recover from this medical violence. Mm. And Um, I guess education is is a part of that. I think, do you think that, that parents um, of kids who present with an intersex variation make decisions based on uh, a lack of information? I mean, would would just talking about intersex people and populations be curative in in that space? Hmm. Interesting. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, you would know more about this than me, (laughs) but there are cultures across the globe that don't seem to have that button-down attitude towards intersex people that we seem to have here and in other white Western cultures? Uh, I struggle to sort of, like, um, talk about cultural examples of intersex because, um, honestly, I'm not qualified to. So if, right. I, if I come out and say something like all hijra in India are intersex, that's a plainly false statement that that's that's me trying to make a commentary on something that I'm not um, from the perspective of um, my own sort of worldview Um, but in terms of characteristics of the hijra I would describe as intersex that's a community that used to be revered and is now being more and more reviled and um, it's interesting with that particular example because there's obviously a lot of Again, I can only sort of try and express this from a very Western colonial uh, sort of point of view, is this idea that uh, um, transgender people find some solidarity and support within hijra communities as well. So mm. it's, it's, I'd rather not get into nitty gritty other cultural contexts for intersex, but in terms of parental support, it's um, like, there's this ongoing back and forth that doctors say, parents insist on surgery and then parents will say that surgery was the only option presented and I know this to be true at the time that I I was born that if there had been another option my parents would have taken it 
Right. So um, I guess the necessary context there is that I was assigned female at birth. I've experienced medical intervention um, or experienced medical violence. Um, so I, it, it's very, very hard to understand exactly who is in the wrong. Or I say in the wrong as though this isn't done compassionately. But then it's sort of like this is why we need to push for legislative protection because we know it keeps happening. Um and there's no real sort of transparency or accountability around any of it. Um, Are we any closer to that legislative protection? Like I said, after, after the federal election and seeing what the state governments are doing right now, I don't know. Right. Uh, I just don't. I don't have an answer. Like, there, there are times where I thought that we were closer, but um, and we're perhaps closer now than we ever um, have been, but the reality is I don't see anyone putting it on the table. Right. Um, and there are models out there. We're seeing um, bills being discussed in Argentina, in California. Malta, has, uh, Malta is the first country in the entire world to pass um, prohibition like legislation on medical intervention. Um, so the models out there exist, but... Um, it's sort of like uh, almost like this complete disinterest in intersex issues. Like um, it only affects a tiny fraction of the population. Why should we care about it? Um, and the the reality is that um, the reality is that when we're having conversations about bodily autonomy, um, that's relevant to everyone. Like if 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 you say that you cannot perform cosmetic surgery on an infant's genitals. Uh, that has huge implications for like conversations around circumcision, around female genital mutilation, mm. um, around all sorts of um, sort of um, conversations around how pediatrics even works. Like that, uh, for anyone with uh, any child with complex medical needs, um, having conversations of, about consent in a pediatric setting has um, huge implications for their healthcare and well-being. So I don't like this idea that we are diminished on this idea that uh, like when we take that 1% to 2% of the population statistic, we're talking about um, over 200,000 people mm, mm. in Australia. Um, when we talk about medical intervention, we use a statistic 1 in 2,000, which is sort of like um, live births with visible sex, like visible variation. Mm. Um, we sort of talked about transparency. We sort of talked about how these issues are handled in legislation. In terms of parenting resources, I think there are more productive conversations being had. Like um, I, there's that TED talk about the kid in America. Um, you know, th this is a child that's being raised without medical intervention with a sense of intersex pride from birth. And there are certainly conversations I'm having with parents now who are interested in trying to do things in the best interest of the child. But the reality is we need this sort of ground up approach where parents are given peer support. Like a lot of peer support resources, because intersex is so, intersex activism is so under resourced, there's very little peer support for parents. Um, AGA provides the only program that I'm aware of um, that is open to intersex parents with our side-by-side -side program. I've talked to, um, you know, the parents of newborn children. I've talked to parents of, like, 
um, very young children. I've talked to parents of very old children, even like uh, those who've already put their kids through medical intervention, and there's a need to just heal through the grief and trauma that they've inflicted on their child. Mm. Mm. That was something I had to go through with my own parents. Mm. It was um, uh, sort of like the thing is that um, the resources aren't quite at a stage yet, and like there's no parenting books that are written about intersex children. Mm. There's no children's books written about intersex children. Right. Well, we got some lovely uh, books like The Gender Fairy and I Am Jazz and all these wonderful, wonderful stories that are being written for transgender children. And um, a parent of an intersex kid turns up and goes, well, do you have anything for an intersex kid? And no. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's an opening for you there, Cody. Can you draw? <laughs> Stick figures. <laughs> yeah. Check it out. Um, okay. All right. I've, I'm going to hold you by the shoulders here yep. <laughs> because I'm going to bring up the subject of religious freedom. Okay. So um, what are your thoughts on the recent statement that was issued by the Vatican and the statements that they made around uh, gender and indeed intersex people? What sort of an effect do you think that this statement might have on intersex rights here in Australia? Uh, it's really hard to say what effect it would have on intersex rights here in Australia. There's certainly families who would put a lot of weight in the Catholic Church and would understand that as that statement as a justification for medical intervention. But it's also important to understand that the recent Vatican statement um, is not consistent with like the whole history of Catholic teaching around intersex variation. It's, um, in fact, it just seems to be from its association with the LGBTIQ, uh, the Vatican has always gone, oh, intersex, it's a type of transgender. What are the intersex activists saying? We'll say the opposite of that. Like It seems very spiteful and just completely lacking in knowledge where actually uh, everything before this point, um, like every theological argument suggested that uh, intersex people were created in the image of God uh, uh, perfect the way they are. Um, so it's it's a step back and it's a problem that people are going to take it seriously. But I think one of the important things to understand about the religious freedoms conversation is that I'm much, much angrier at it as someone who's same-sex attracted and is non-binary sort of agendered than I am as an intersex person. Because when we look at the Ruddock Review, um, every single recommendation accepted intersex people. Um, The reality is that where religion deals with intersex people, it's either just sort of like, yeah, they're fine. It's almost like um, we have this concept that um, LGBTQ people are born with it and from a religious perspective intersex people are actually born with it Um, and so that's what makes them acceptable where um, LGBTQ people aren't necessarily acceptable Mm. in in the same context Mm. Um, so yeah religious freedoms it's it's a very hot topic at the moment Um, 
And there just seems to be a lot of malice and a lot of poor information and a lot of misunderstanding just flying about when it comes to intersex. Like, we're almost caught in the friendly fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are. It's a lot of fear-mongering and inciting of hatred and misunderstanding. Like, when you get an internet troll, like, pinging you on Twitter, just like, you filthy intersex pervert, you're just like... You have no, no. idea. No. <laughs> like you're making a judgment here that you do about something you do not understand. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, this is the internet. It is a full contact sport. I know what I'd say to upset an intersex person, and it's almost never what I get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we've spoken about the the acronym. We've yep. spoken about LGBTIQ. What about lateral violence? <laughs> Do you, what what is the what are the intersex people and populations experience of lateral violence? Again, and, and firstly, can yeah. you explain what lateral violence is? Um, again, this is one of those topics um, where I really want to deep dive into it, but I don't want to misstep and um, get myself into a little bit of trouble here. Um, I will say that so starting off with the definition of lateral violence. Um, Lateral violence is sort of like this idea that uh, people are three-dimensional, their identities encapsulate a whole variety of things, and where those identities can clash with each other, it can um, cause animosity with those particular communities. So the sort of classic example is um, queer people of faith. Queer spaces tend to be very, very hostile towards faith identities. Um, Faith spaces tend to be very, very hostile to queer identities. It's almost like you're not allowed to exist in either space, and the upshot of that is um, you sort of don't have community. And um, so lateral community uh, is sort of... Lateral violence is sort of like the violence of intersectionality. Um, And there's a lot of interesting implications for it in the intersex community. Um, Like I said, for someone who's sort of um, cisgendered and heterosexual, um, those identities don't tend to be accepted in queer spaces or aren't um, regarded in a friendly way in queer spaces. So they're sort of like lateral violence going one way, uh, in, in a direction that way. Uh, but the lateral violence that I've experienced um, tends to be on account of being non-binary, being agendered. Um, and it's sort of like, how dare you advocate for the intersex community um, when you're sort of like presenting yourself as a freak, presenting yourself as this third gender. We have an entitlement to male and female mm. identities and you're com- compromising it. Mm. And... Um, like I, I've dealt with that in a um, um, very, very harshly. Like um, there's been intersex organisations that have basically chased me out, and uh, it used to be a few years ago I was almost like a bit of a pariah um, in the intersex community, but thankfully a lot of it has chilled out now. Check it out. Okay, so if I was to go online, I go to Intersex Human Rights Australia, ihra.org.au. Yep. I can find something called the Darlington Statement there. In fact, you can find it on its own website, darlington.org.au. Tell us about it, Cody. So, um, a couple of years ago, um, yeah, 2017, um, I was very, very privileged to be asked to um, a retreat retreat 
Um, and here's a cute little bit of trivia. Uh, we sort of negotiated this document in the Darlington building of Sydney University, which is why it's referred to as the Darlington Statement. But what it was was about two dozen intersex people from Australia, New Zealand, who were associated with organisations, who were independent activists, who had all kinds of gender identities and um, like different intersex variations. We all got into this room in Darlington and we screamed at each other for three days. Right. <laughs> like, that was pretty much it. But what the goal of it was, was laying out a set of common goals to intersex activism. So we had this document to ground um, ground the whole community in. And it's it has had um, an absolutely revolutionary effect. It's sort of like any time um, you advocate for the intersex community, you can go, well... 22 of the best minds in uh, in Australia and New Zealand say this is the thing that you need to do so this is the thing that mm-hmm. you need to do and it gives it so much weight mm-hmm. um, and I think that um, in terms of laying out um, sort of very broad expectations it's helped sort of um, dial back this idea of lateral violence so like if we're all trying to end medical intervention, if we all understand that um, educational support is an issue for these particular types of variations if we know that um, medical access to medical records is an issue for these particular intersex variations and if we're all fighting for the same thing um, then it doesn't really matter what your gender identity is it doesn't really matter what what's sort of going on um, so the Darlington Statement was a first of its kind and one of the really cool things to see is that it is being adopted elsewhere in the world and just seeing some of the differences between the different statements is incredible. So mm. there's Intersex Asia, who have done an Asia-Pacific um, statement. Um, I believe there's a South American statement now, and I believe there's an African statement. There's some incredible activists doing some incredible things in um, uh, South Africa and Kenya at the moment. So the Darlington um, statement really did kind of lead the way. Uh, it really, really has, but it's sort of um, been really, really interesting seeing the differences, because uh, you know, uh, I was very, very privileged to be able to go to ILGA this year and um, meet these activists who are writing these statements and doing this activism in all parts of the globe. And it's sort of like we're swapping notes and just sort of like we got the Americans, we got the Australians, just sort of like stop cutting up intersex babies. Mm. And then we have um, people from Asia who are just sort of like looking at inheritance law and looking at sort of like. Uh, how rights are stripped from the firstborn if they're born intersex, which is right. not something that sort of happens here. Mm. Uh, it's just because that sort of that carrying on the ancestry is mm. so mm. vital, and a lot of intersex people mm. can't reproduce. Mm. That um, you know, it's it, it's of course it's an issue there. It, mm. It's very 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 intuitively an issue there, but it's not something we even mentioned mm. at Darlington. And then we get to Africa and it's just sort of like, we just want the superstition to stop. We want people to stop killing their intersex children. And then that sort of just takes the wind, just yeah. the wind out of your lungs. Mm. It's just, Darlington was um, re- like a revelation. It was revolutionary and it's being emulated. But then this gets back to what I was saying. This was written in 2017. Uh, it's eight pages long. Um, I think there's about 60 different items on it. None of it's been implemented. Right. Like None of it has the support of the federal government. None of it has the support of um, 
state government, or if it has support, it only has support in word only. It's, we haven't really seen these things implemented. Like at AGA, um, there are items in the Darlington Statement about peer support. I oh. provide peer support. There's items in there about um, a patient rights toolkit. I'm developing a patient rights toolkit. So there's stuff that I'm implementing in a very practical way, but in terms of the legislative changes and the health reform that we need uh, to have happen, this was a conversation that we had two years ago. This is a conversation that's been going since the mid-90s, probably Mm. before that, um, likely before that. and like we're still in this situation where there's no legislative protection. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's something for for you and the 22 people who who drew up the Darlington Statement to be immensely proud of. Mm. Um, that it's had that ripple effect throughout the globe. That's an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. It's a shame that. Um, the powers that be aren't really listening or they're not taking into consideration some of these hard changes that that could and should be made. But do you have a sense of positivity and optimism that those changes can be made in the future? Um, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do if I didn't. Good answer. (laughs) And um, if you want to support my work, then the best thing you can do is to keep putting weight behind the intersex human rights movement. I talked about darlington.org.au. Go read the Darlington Statement yourself. Go understand it. Understand where the intent is coming from and what we need. Um, and then affirm it. We, mm. we had a, a follow-up retreat to Darlington, Darlington 2, where we developed these affirmation statements. You can affirm it as someone with intersex variation. You can affirm it as an ally, as an ally organisation. Um and the reality is that, you know, I can say twenty uh, like 22 people wrote this, but then 50 into six people have affirmed it, um, and like hundreds of individuals and organisations have mm. also affirmed it. And when you start to put that weight behind it, and that's when we really get the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah. So you can go to either Darlington Statement, the website, or you mm-hmm. can go to um, IHRA, hum, Intersex Human Rights Australia, find the Darlington Statement there. It's just a matter of adding your uh, email address and some other information, is that right, for you to affirm that statement? Uh, yeah, we take down some details and then periodically update uh, the website with um, uh, a list of names and organisations that have supported. Great. We'll have a, a link attached to this podcast okay. as well, so you can check it out for yourself yep. and affirm it. Yeah. Do it. So at Agenda Agenda, we do have um, intersex peer support. Uh, we run this group side by side. Um, it's on the th- uh, third Thursday of every month. Uh, it's a group for people with intersex variation, it's um, also for um, parents and partners and carers. So the way I like to think of it is intersex people and intersex adjacent people. So if you know anyone who falls into that sort of group, um, send them my way. Another really important thing that's happening at the moment is Youth and I. Uh, Youth and I received the Capital of Equality grant um, is the uh, sort of brainchild of another ACT intersex advocate, Steph Lum. The idea of this project is it's going to be a creative work, so it's not going to be the same old education, uh, 1.7% red hair kind of um, resource. It's going to be body positive. It's going to be affirmative. 
and uh, it's a paid opportunity uh, is, is one of the really exciting things. So we encourage um, intersex people um, across Australia to uh, look up Youth and Die uh, on Facebook or on the Darlington website and um, get, get a submission in. It's going to go into a published work, um, hopefully by Intersex Awareness Day, and it's a really exciting opportunity. Thanks so much, Cody. I've been talking to Cody Smith, intersex project worker at Agenda Agenda, AGA. Now, I hope that if you have any news about any legislative changes or any plugs that you might like to add, that you might come back to our studio again. Absolutely. I'd be very pleased to. Cody Smith, thank you so much. For more information, visit our website at aidsaction.org.au. Follow us on Facebook or become an AIDS Action Council member. You know you want to. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle and community news. Check it out. It's brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone.